Well, for the last time, at least in this class, uh, would you take your Bible with me, please, and turn to the book of Philippians. As you're turning there, um, when I was a kid, uh, one of the things we would do very often is go over to my grandparents' house, my paternal grandparents'. Uh, they lived about three miles down the road, and, and uh, uh, so it wasn't too hard to get to their house. And I remember walking in the house one day, and uh, they had this little picture on the wall, and it was kind of like green and blue and yellow. It looked like some sort of abstract art, and you kind of walked by, and it didn't really go with anything else in the room. It was kind of like, what, what is this? And uh, I don't know if someone explained it to us or if we finally asked, but it's like, you know, Grandma, what, what is this thing? What, what's the deal? And she said, oh, it's, it's, one of those, it's one of those pictures that you have to kind of focus past the picture to see, you know, and I, what are the, you, you know what those are called? What's that? Magic eye. Magic eye? Okay, I, yeah, I, I was like 10 at the time. So the, these this magic eye pictures on the wall. And, and, you know, as a kid, it's like, you know, you're trying to make this thing work, right? And, and, and I remember the day that, that, I don't know, someone helped me, I'm sure, with it. And, um, and as, as you kind of squinted and focused and got past the thing, you, you, you guys know what I'm talking about? And the picture just comes alive, right? And, and what it was... It was a picture of resurrection morning. The cross, the tomb with the stone rolled away. Um, and I think it, it had a verse maybe at the bottom. And it was like, wow, I can see this now. And, and now I can appreciate the message and I understand uh, and, and appreciate the, um, the picture for what it is. Uh, well, thinking of that experience reminded me of our study in Philippians because... Um, one of the hard parts about being a Bible teacher is I have to give you guys somewhat of an outline and a title on the front end of our study, but that's a bit unfair because I haven't studied the book thoroughly yet. I don't know what it's about yet, right? So, you know, you, you read background and you kind of study it preliminarily and you get an idea. Um, but one of my favorite things to do at the end of a book study is, is to sit back and say, well, if, if I could retitle this thing, what would I call it? And uh, here, here's, here's my new title. The joy of a divine perspective. Because as I've studied Philippians, if we studied together, and, and maybe you'll disagree, maybe you have a better title, and please suggest that if you, if you have it. But as we've studied this book, th- this book is like that picture. It, it gives us a different way of looking at life, of looking at the world, of looking about trials and suffering, looking about hard experiences, thinking about church. And as, as Philippians has helped us, in a sense, to, to focus past the world on what God wants us to see, What's happened? I think, at least in my life, and I hope in your life, that in many ways, the things that Philippians has talked about have come into focus. And now we can see the world a little bit more the way God wants us to see it. We've gained a divine perspective. And just like that picture on the wall at Grandma's house, we now enjoy and have joy in that perspective. So Philippians is often called the, the letter of joy, the epistle of joy. But I think it's an epistle of joy that, that one of the secrets of Paul's joy is that he's learned to view things from a divine perspective. Okay, so that's my new title. I don't know if you agree with me or not, but, but I think, at least for Keith, that's what I kind of gained from our time together. 
So what I want to do today, as I said, we're going to take the airplane to 35,000 feet very quickly, and we're going to look down on Philippians, and I wish we could just go through it all again, but what we're going to do is we're going to try to hit the high points today and um, remind ourselves of some of the things we've talked about, uh, and, and like any jet tour, uh, we'll have to keep the airplane moving 450 miles an hour, somewhere in that range, but um, hopefully this will be a nice overview and reminder of where we've been and will encourage us uh, in the days ahead. Well, just, just this is you know long, long time ago, way back in the spring, you remember that Philippians, uh, the church of Philippi was founded on Paul's second missionary journey. Uh, he started in Jerusalem, went up to Damascus, up around here through, this is called Asia Minor, uh, Turkey today, and uh, through the region here, and Troas gets in a boat, goes across uh, the sea here to uh, this little town right here, Neapolis. And then if you go up the river just a little ways, that's where the city of Philippi is. And, and uh, we won't do it now, but you'll remember in Acts 16, Paul shows up in the city of Philippi and he meets Lydia and some other women on the Sabbath. And uh, they were down at the lake having a little prayer meeting. And, um, and Paul, out of that experience, Paul uh, founded the Philippian church. If you were to wander over to... Actually, let's zoom in here so you can see it. Here, it's not... This Kavala is like the ancient Neapolis, so Philippi would be right up the river there um, in what is uh, Greece today. Okay. Um, that's the uh, Gangites River. That was probably uh, where Paul was uh, when he found the ladies that were praying. And uh, here's a picture of uh, modern day. Uh, actually, that's you can see the river right there. This is a little uh, park area that's been set up there. And uh, there it is from the air. Good old Google Maps, right? Google satellite maps. The ruins of, uh, of ancient Philippi as seen in modern times. And uh, anyway, so you get the idea. That's one of the old uh, roads there, one of the main highways there. Kind of looks like I-20, doesn't it? All the potholes and after that ice storm. Okay, so uh, so that's where we've been. Uh, he founded the church on his second missionary journey, and then, uh, of course, his third missionary journey, uh, that was the path, and then finally the fourth missionary journey, where he ends up, uh, he's arrested, and he's taken under house arrest to Rome, and it's from house arrest in Rome that he writes to the Philippians the letter that we know as the book of Philippians. Okay, so that's kind of where we've been. Paul's under house arrest in Rome. And the title tells us that the authors were Paul and Timothy. Uh, so we don't know uh, what role Timothy may have played there, whether he uh, participated in the writing of the letter directly or if he was just a representative because uh, uh, he was somewhat nearby in Ephesus. But anyway, um, so they, they were the authors. And uh, just some basic background, just so you have it there on your notes. Um, if you have a study Bible, um, this is nothing new, but... Uh, Paul, who wrote, as accompanied by Timothy, he wrote around 62 A.D., somewhere in the 60-62 range. Um, he was writing from prison, so it's called a prison epistle or a prison letter. Uh, the recipients were the believers of the Philippian church. And uh, what was the occasion, what was really the, the reason for the letter? Uh, he wants to inform them of his experience in Rome. Uh, to exhort them to unity, to explain his returning of Epaphroditus to them. Remember, um, he got sick and was very concerned, so Epaphroditus wanted to go back and see uh, the Philippians for himself. 
to warn them about false teachers, the Judaizers in chapter 3, verse 1, and then finally to express thankfulness for the recent monetary contribution. But, but even, even in doing that, that, that gives us some context. But you understand, and I bet you don't do this. You don't, you don't always sit down and write a letter um, or have a conversation with somebody with like one theme in mind. I mean, sometimes you might. But one of the neat things about unfolding this letter is you see all of the things that was on Paul's mind and on his heart to communicate to the Philippians. So even though this is the occasion, uh, the letter is much more than that, as we have seen. So here's what I want to do. I'm going to give you key points to remember from each of the four chapters, and we're going to do that in about 30 minutes. So make sure your seatbelt is securely fashioned, your tray table is in their upright and locked position, your uh, cell phones are off, all electronic devices... Here we go. Number one, we need to remember that God will complete the work that he started. God will complete the work that he started. After introducing himself and thanking God for uh, the folks at uh, Philippi, he says in verse 6, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ. Um, what's he talking about there? Well, the work that he's talking about in verse 6, the work that God is going to complete, is found in verse 5 in view of their participation in the gospel. Um, that, and that's not, just, that's not just like they were on board in Paul's ministry, but what he's saying is from, from the very first day that Paul showed up and found those ladies praying and he presents the gospel to them and the gospel begins to go forth in that area, that uh, the Philippians have largely responded favorably to, the, favorably to the gospel and they are growing in maturity and transformation, being a part of the work of the ministry. And Paul is very, very thankful for them because of that. And verse 6 tells us he's confident that God's going to complete that work. That's a good reminder because there are days that probably all of us feel like I'm a hopeless case. The struggle with sin, the struggle with the flesh, the struggle with the world, the struggle with the devil. And there are days you'd say, Lord, um, I wouldn't blame you if you just gave up on me. I really wouldn't. Uh, and yet this is one of the most precious verses in Scripture. That and, and notice where the emphasis lies. Look back at verse 6. I am confident of this very thing that he, there you go, who began a good work in you will perfect it. God finishes what he starts. He completes the work that he begins. He matures the believer that he converts. And uh, we'll see it again in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. But we understand that salvation, our security in salvation, is, is secure because he has promised to finish the work. He's promised to do that. And that's something we need to remember about our time in Philippians. Number two, we should remember how to pray for each other. We should remember how to pray. L- listen to this prayer, okay? And, and this, should, this should really set the tone and the table uh, for our times of prayer for one another. Verse 9, This I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent, in order to be sincere and blameless into the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. What's the essence of his prayer there? What is it? Spiritual growth and maturity. 
Right now, now you're going to find scattered throughout Paul's letters uh, prayers for health, prayers for security and safety, prayers for circumstances. But but fundamentally, the the way <laughs> the way godly men and women pray in Scripture is that God would mature them and grow them and transform them and help them to be more like Jesus. And so I want to encourage you, as we did way back in the spring. When the Bible presents prayers like that, we can learn from those. Those are instructive. Those should help us to know how to pray uh, as we continue to pray for others. There's a third thing we need to remember from Philippians, and that is this. We need to remember what Philippians taught us about having joy in trials. Uh, Philippians teaches us how to have joy in trials, and this isn't the only place, but uh, j- just listen to this and then we'll draw the points. By the way, um, I didn't want to give you a book in your notes today, so I only hit like the main points. So some of those main points, I'm going to give you some sub points, and I can tell you right now, you're not going to have time or the room to fill them all in, the little sub points. So if that's frustrating to you, I've got everything right here on my computer. I am happy to send them to you. Okay, so I just didn't want to, if I gave you everything I'm going to put up here just to kind of remind ourselves, um, I, I would have need to have book bags for you to take them home in so uh, okay so just that footnote there listen to verse verses 12 uh, to 18 now i want you to know and this gets into the one of the first reasons that he's writing to them i want you to know brethren that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel so that my my imprisonment in the cause of christ has become well known throughout the whole praetorian guard and to everyone else and that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are pre- preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but also some from good from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. But the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. Do you see the divine perspective he has there? Do you see that, and again, I connect the dots along the way. His joy is almost always linked to him having a divine perspective. He's looking at things a certain way, and that certain way is, brings him joy. Now, this, this, is, this is a point where um, how is Paul thinking about his trials and his suffering? He's in prison, and he's hearing that there are people out there, in a sense, mocking the gospel because they are preaching for selfish ambition, for gain, for some, some other ungodly means, and they were doing it, Paul says, to get to him. They were doing it to frustrate Paul because they knew he couldn't get out of prison and go stop him. Well, what's Paul's perspective on that? He says, you know what? I'm thinking, first of all, about the Praetorian Guard. That there are people that have heard about my imprisonment and are hearing the gospel who have never heard it before. And that brings me joy. He says, second, there are some other believers who are tempted to be timid and to lack courage and to not get out there and be bold with the gospel lest they be persecuted or endure some sort of prison sentence or suffering. And they said, well, because of my example, those people have courage to speak the word of God without fear. And that brings me joy. 
And oh, by the way, those guys that are doing it out of selfish ambition, that are doing it to try to get to me, as long as they're getting the gospel message clear, which apparently they were, he says, I don't care because people are hearing about Jesus. That's a divine perspective. And, and remember, remember the questions that we learn, the diagnostic questions that we learn based on Paul's example here. How am I interpreting my circumstance? That's small, isn't it? I'm sorry. Well, you're not going to write it down anyway. I'll just read it to you. Um, how am I interpreting my circumstances, especially trials? How we interpret is huge as to whether or not we have joy or depression in a trial. And Paul clearly is interpreting these things from a divine perspective. He's seeing what God is doing in the midst of it, and that's encouraging him. Question two, do I view trials as ordained strategic opportunities for the gospel? He says, I'm in prison, and he could have said, woe is me, I can't go on any more missionary trips, I can't go see this church, I can't go plant that church. But he says, "Um, I bet God has a reason for me being in prison in Rome. I bet he's got a reason for that. And, and Paul didn't have to look very far to go, you know what, you see those soldiers over there? You know what they do? They hang out with Caesar. And one of them comes and stands at my door and keeps an eye on me every day. And they get to hear me sing to the Lord. They get to hear conversations with visitors. You remember Paul was allowed to see visitors occasionally. They get to overhear gospel conversations. And this is the Apostle Paul, so I can guarantee whether that soldier liked it or not, he's doing his duty. He can't leave. I can guarantee you Paul preached to the guy. It's like being on an airplane with somebody. You know, too bad, sir, you got three hours. you got to listen to me. Right? You can't do anything about it. And that was Paul's perspective. He, he saw the trial as an ordained strategic opportunity for the gospel. Number three, have I thought about the effect that my example can have on others? How we suffer can either help or hinder other believers. And how we suffer can either bring credibility to the gospel or can demean the gospel when we suffer like anybody else. But when we suffer the way First Peter talks about, the way Romans 8 talks about, the way um, we, we hear in other letters, Second Corinthians, when we suffer in a way that honors God, that makes the gospel look glorious. It makes the gospel attractive to a world out there that is trying to deal with suffering and they don't know how to do it. So how we suffer has an effect on others. And have we thought about that? Number four, do I rejoice in the good that God is always working in trials? It's like that picture. You walk by it the first time and it looks like a a glob of ink. But once you learn to see it, it comes out and and there's life. And and it's it's three-dimensional even, right? It's not just static. It's a three-dimensional thing. And we have to learn to see the good things that God is doing in the trial, in the suffering, as Romans 8.28 says, in the all things of life. We need to learn to see that. We need to develop spiritual eyes to see that. And finally, can I rejoice in the good God is doing even through those who hurt me? That's a hard question, isn't it? A divine perspective is with God's grace and with God's help, I learn to see the good and to rejoice in it, even 
through times when others hurt me, like these folks were trying to do in in um, hurting Paul there. Okay, that's pretty profound, and that's one of the things we learned along the way. Third thing we learned: to live is Christ, and to die is gain. What what motivated Paul? What motivated him in his uh, in his walk with the Lord in his his ministry, what, what was the driving passion of his life? Well, he tells us in verse 21, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Any questions? He says. Jesus is the passion of his life. Jesus is the reason for living. Jesus is the fuel that, that empowered him every day, that gave him a purpose and motivation, that, that made, made his priorities very clear. He said very simply, if I'm still living and breathing on this planet, it is for Jesus. And if he takes me home, that's okay, because that's gain. Then I get to hang out with him for eternity. And we learned some things like this. Dying is about being with Christ, which is a very much better option, according to Paul. Um, I don't know about you, but um, there are plenty of days I'm ready to get, get rid of this, this sinful flesh. Right? The, the old man is dead, but his carcass is still strapped to our back. As, <laughs> we were in Romans 6. And Romans 6 is a great chapter that is very hard to under, understand if you're four. So... So I'm thinking, how can I do this? Because Romans 6 is about, if you trust in Jesus, your old self dies with him and you're raised to walk in newness of life. But we know that the old man, though he's dead, still has great influence through this thing called the flesh. So I'm like, how, how do I communicate that to Eric? You know, he's, he's, he's a sharp guy, but he's four. Okay, so I got this idea. I said, okay, so I, and, and you, you can, you can laugh and write notes to me later on, but, um, I got two post-its and I wrote, new man, and then I wrote old man. I brought Alan up because I figured he would be the most qualified for this. And I said, okay, you're going to be the new man. And slapped it on the front of him. New man in Christ, right? And I said, and daddy's going to be the old man. So old man, put on daddy. And, uh, and, and we kind of, okay, let's pretend that we're together. And, and you trust Christ, okay. And so I'm dead. And I took my weight and just you know, put, it, put my arms around his neck and just, you know, and I, you know, gave a little bit so I didn't just you know, knock him over. And I said, Okay, so 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 you're new in Christ. The old man is dead, but he's strapped to your back, right? And Alan's like, yeah, daddy, okay, right? And I say, okay, let's say that going toward the kitchen is righteousness and obedience and godliness, and going toward the back door is sin and unrighteousness and things that don't honor God, okay? So which way are you going to go? He says, I want to go the way of obedience. So I, so he tries to go this way, and I'm like, you know, lean into the thing. See, that's what it does, right? That's what happens, and I'm, I'm ready for that carcass to be off my back. Are you? Paul was too. And that's why he said to die is gain. It's very much better. But, but he says, I'm not dead yet, so that must mean that living is about honoring Christ by engaging in fruitful labor for the progress of faith and joy in others. And so his motivation to live, according to verse 24, look at verse 24, he says, he says, I'd rather be with Jesus, I'd rather die to go be with him, verse 24, yet to remain on in the flesh, meaning to be alive on the planet still, is more necessary for your sake. So he's like, yeah, given the choice, I'm with Jesus, I'm there, but God has me here, and that must mean my work isn't done here yet. I'm here for your benefit. 
And I, do you think, do you, that's a, man, that's a divine perspective. We're trying to focus on the picture, right? And see, do you think about that? Do you think, if I'm a Christian, why am I still here? Why? Everything else is better in heaven, right? Everything, worship is better. Knowledge is better. No struggle with sin. None of this going to the doctor thing. When it, It's all better in heaven. So why are we here? The answer is, this world needs the gospel. That's why, uh, yeah. That's, that's exactly. Thank you. <laughs> yes, yes. Footnote that. Okay, so that that was his motivation. He's like, if I'm here, it's for ministry. Um, you notice there's nothing about golf clubs or scrapbooking. There's nothing about um, hobbies. And he says, and not that those things can't be a part of um, you know enjoying what God has given us, but but he says that's that's not my motivation. It's about ministry. That's a divine perspective. And finally, actually, that, w- that was the end of chapter 1. End of chapter 1. Let's look at chapter 2. Key points from chapter 2, and oh my, we need to keep moving here. So, chapter 2. Chapter 2 is largely about this. We should follow Christ's humble example. You remember this? We should follow Christ's humble example. He says, first of all, by preferring others and considering them as more important. He says in chapter 2, verse 1, If there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, he says, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. We follow Christ, we honor Him by being unified. Well, unity depends on something very important. You can't be unified unless you do what verses 3 and 4 say. Okay, well, what does 3 and 4 say? Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Think of what our relationships would be like if we did that. Think of what unity and harmony we would enjoy in our marriages or on the workplace or with our children, you know, little or adult. Um, think, of, think of our church. Th- think of how much better we would work together for the gospel. Th- think about how this one little verse would transform our relationships, every single one of them. How do we do that? Well, it, it, it's easy, but it's hard. It's simple, but it's very hard to do because I have to die to myself. I have to say that even though I think it, life doesn't revolve around me. And I'm not always right. And my needs are not most important. Um, my neighbors are. And I need to actually get in my mind that they are more important than me. And if I can get that in my mind, that's going to change where we go to lunch today, and that whole discussion. That's going to change what we do this evening. That's going to change how we talk to one another, how we treat one another. And you say, well, that's pretty hard. Uh, Why should we do that? The answer is because that's what Jesus did. That's exactly what Jesus did. We prefer others and considering them as more important. We follow his humble example. Well, why do we do that? Verse 5 says, have this attitude. Well, what attitude? The attitude mentioned in verses 3 and 4. To consider one another as more important than ourselves. That it was that attitude in our, or we should have that attitude which was also in Christ Jesus. Now watch this. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. 
If anybody could show up on the earth and say, um, <clears throat> excuse me, life does revolve around me, it was Jesus. Because he's God. Life does revolve around him. But, but the Bible tells us here that he didn't take that special relationship as the second person of the Trinity and lord it over people. He used it as an occasion to illustrate humility. And he considered people as more important than himself. So how do we know that? Because he died for us. The ultimate act and demonstration of humility. He didn't regard a quality with God of things to be grasped. Meaning he didn't cling to that position and say, I'm not willing to give it up, Father. Verse 7, he emptied himself. He left that exalted position at the right hand of the Father to take the form of a bondservant, to be made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, what's that called? The kenosis. And what is kenosis? Yeah, it's, it's, it's the word you see right there, emptied himself. Kenosis comes from the verb to empty himself. Okay? The other thing, and, and Gary's not allowed to participate in this. Um, what's the other thing that this is called? The, what kind of union? The hypostatic union. Very good. The kenosis is the supreme demonstration of humility. The hypostatic union, which can be defined as the union of Christ's divinity, with humanity in one person. The hypostatic union. 100% God, 100% man. Those two natures coming together, uh, without mixing the natures, but coming together in one person. The God-man, Jesus Christ. And our own uh, favorite theologian, uh, Paul Enns, Terry's father, puts it like this in the Moody Handbook of Theology. The two natures of Christ are inseparably united without mixture or loss of separate identity. He remains forever the God-man, fully God and fully man. Two distinct natures in one person forever. And though Christ sometimes operated in the sphere of his humanity and in other cases in the spheres of his deity, in all cases he did at what he did and what, what could be attributed to his one person. Even though it is evident that there were two natures in Christ, he never considered a, he's never considered a dual personality. In summarizing the hypostatic union, three facts are noted. Number one, Christ has two distinct natures, human and de- humanity and deity. Number two, there's no mixture, intermingling of those two natures. And number three, although he has two natures, Christ is one person. Okay? Uh, and that's one of the things we learned, and, and not just from this text, but we learned that in Hebrews chapter 1, in John 1, in Colossians 1, all those places of Scripture. And we see it fleshed out here. It says, first of all, though he existed in the form of God, that means Jesus was God, yet he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, meaning Jesus was willing to give up this equality with God. Now that's where you have to put an asterisk and say, whoa, 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 let's make sure we're really careful about defining what that means. Because we're walking, we're walking the line, we have the cliff, of heresy on the one side and, and and the road of orthodoxy on the other side. And we're walking that cliff, so we want to always be careful with this. What does it mean that Jesus was willing to give up that equality? What it meant is he emptied himself. And by context, what I think that means is he gives up the exalted position with God the Father. This whole section is about humility, about um, being a servant, about humbling yourself. 
So by context, and that's not all that the kenosis means. We can go to other chapters and talk about what that means. But for our purposes here, what emptied himself means is he gives up that exalted position. He says, I'm not going to stay in heaven at the Father's right hand. I'm going to go to the earth to be incarnate and to walk the planet as the God-man. He takes the form of a bondservant. And by the way, the, the three um, clauses that explain emptied himself support that position. Taking the form of a bondservant, that was the lowliest position. Being made in the likeness of men, he took on human nature. Being found in appearance as a man, including the outward form of human nature, a human body. There were some heresies that said, well, it's not a real body. No, it was a real body. It actually ate and drank and slept and then died. Why did he do all that? In all that, he did not give up his deity or any of his attributes. Okay? He did not cease to be God in the kenosis in any way, shape, or form. So why should we follow Christ's example? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This was the ultimate act of humility, the Son of God dying in the place of sinners. This was the ultimate humiliation, crucifixion as a criminal. It was the main reason Jesus became the God-man. The atonement required that Jesus be both a man and God. And so the kenosis, in summary, means that Jesus gave up his exalted position that he enjoyed with God the Father and God the Spirit in order to come to the earth, take on human nature and flesh, assume the humble role as a slave in order to die as a substitute for sinful humanity. And even though that is one of the crown jewels of theology in the Bible, by context, it's merely illustrative or serving as an example for what? You should consider one another as more important than yourself because that's what your Savior did. It's an example of humility. It's an example of, of being a servant. Okay, we've got to move on. What's the Father's response? Therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those who are in heaven and, under the earth, and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God, um, at the resurrection first and then at his ascension, uh, glorifies the Son brings him back to heaven, and now he is seated at the right hand of his Father, interceding for believers uh, on our behalf there. So, okay, so God exalts him. We should follow that. The second thing we learn in chapter 2 is that we should work out our salvation. And by context, verse 12, well, let's read it together here. Chapter 3, I'm sorry, chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So by context, when he says work out your salvation, what he really is talking about is work out your sanctification. Work out that that progressive part of walking with Christ. Now, do you remember this? What happens at conversion? At conversion... The believer's position is perfect Christ-likeness, perfect righteousness. He's clothed in the righteousness of Christ. The blue arrow is the believer's position. At his conversion, he is perfectly righteous, declared righteous, clothed in Christ's own righteousness. But what happens in his practice? Is he perfect in his practice? No. His practice looks something like this. 
Good days, bad days. Good days, bad days. Good days, bad days. Good days, bad days, right? That's how it goes. And that's why it's called progressive sanctification. Not perfection sanctification, progressive sanctification. Until, what happens? What happens? Yes, one day, guess what? One day you die. And at that point, our faith becomes sight. Right? We, we are glorified. We are, as, as it says later on in Philippians, our body is glorified and made so that it perfectly reflects Jesus now. So now that our position and our practice are the same now, that glorification. And you can think of sanctification, you can think of the Christian walk as a convergence of our practice with our position. Does that make sense? Okay, so, so what do we call this? A conversion, uh, that's justification. That ongoing progress in practical godliness and practical holiness is called sanctification. And then when we die and our, our practice is made perfect with our position, that's called glorification. Okay? And, and, and notice, for, for, our, for our purposes, what Paul wants us to see is, first of all, I'm not going to be able to finish all this. We know the basis of a believer's sanctification is his position in Christ. I'm sorry, Sally. That's not even doing justice to it. But our, the basis of sanctification is always his position in Christ. But notice what Paul emphasizes in these verses. Two things. One is the believer has a role in sanctification. He is to work out his sanctification. It's the hard work of obedience to the commands of Scripture, putting off the old man, putting on the new, renewing the mind, walking in obedience, uh, whatever you want to call it, the Bible's filled with commands to the believer to live in light of his position, okay? To work out his salvation. And yet, as the believer strives, works, obeys, verse 13, it's God who is at work in him, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So, so the believer recognizes, I'm only able to do this because God is working in me. And notice that God does what? He produces the desire to obey, to will, and he works through the believer's effort, enabling him to obey, to will, and to work for his good pleasure. Whose idea was this to do this all in all one message? Was that mine? I can't blame you guys? Okay. Anyway. Let's move on. This was profound to me uh, years ago, verse 17. One other, one other takeaway. How did Paul look at his life? He says, But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. Just 30 seconds on that. Paul challenges us to view our life as something that is meant to be spent. He challenges us to view our life as a sacrifice that was not meant to stay in the bowl, to stay in the pitcher, on the altar, but as a sacrifice that was meant to be taken up and poured out on the sacrifice so that when the sacrifice is done, there's nothing left. Do you view your life like that? That our life is not for us, our life is not for our pleasure in, in worldly pursuits, that our life is meant to be spent, to meant to be poured out in ministry to the glory of God and to the furtherance of the gospel. And that one verse could radically change your life if, if we were to embrace it. 
Paul lived it. That's a divine perspective. Now, remember this? Beware of dog. Beware of dog. Chapter 3, he says, beware of the dogs. Who were the dogs? The dogs were the Judaizers, people that were trying to take Judaism and glue it to Christianity and saying things like, you must be circumcised, you must keep Jewish law, you must do ritual purification and follow all of the dietary laws and civil laws and all the Old Testament law code. And Paul just very simply reminds us, we skipped over, do all things without grumbling and complaining, didn't we? Okay, well, do all things without grumbling and complaining, okay? I'm sorry. Uh, what's the takeaway from beware the dogs? You say, we don't have any Judaizers here. Well, we may not, but here's what we do have. The Bible declares that any trust, reliance, faith, or confidence in anything or anyone other than Jesus Christ alone, especially self-reliance, is a false gospel. Or if you want it really simply, Christ plus anything equals a false gospel. Sometimes if you can reduce theology to a math equation, it makes sense for about half of you in the room. And the rest of you are going, oh, math, no, I thought this was Sunday school. And along with that, if if that's the put off that we need to be aware of anything else to rely in, Paul says this in chapter 3, verse 2, to be found in Christ is everything. Verse 8 of chapter 3, he says, More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, garbage, the trash heap, the toilet, in order that I may gain Christ. Paul says, my hope was not that I'm a Benjaminite, that I was a Pharisee, a Jew of Jews, schooled under Hillel, that I, I am a blameless in regard to the law, in regard to persecution. I was zealous for Judaism. None of that matters. Only one thing matters at the end of the day, that I might be found in Jesus. That's the only thing that matters, that I might be found, as he says, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, derived from all that stuff that I used to be involved in, not by relying on self, not by buying my way into heaven, not by being a good person, but my only hope is to be found in Jesus Christ himself and his finished work on the cross, and that is my only hope. And he says, compared to knowing Jesus, everything else is trash. So, two more math equations, since I'm in that mode. Everything minus Christ equals garbage. But Christ plus nothing equals everything. And maybe you'll remember that. Okay. Let's wrap this up here, guys. Chapter 12, chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. Chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. He says, not that I've already obtained it. Obtained what? Perfection. Perfect maturity. A heaven. The resurrection of the dead. I have not attained that, or have I become perfect, but I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. There is no such thing as spiritual retirement. 
We are to press on to maturity, press on to Christ's likeness, press on in ministry till Jesus takes us home. So press on to maturity. Next thing, remember your heavenly citizenship, because there are some days that's going to be a very frustrating endeavor. And Paul just says this in chapter 3, verse 20, but remember that our citizenship is in heaven. And one day he will do this. We wait, Paul says, for a Savior, verse 21, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. Did you guys get that? There is one day when God will do this amazing miracle and we will look experientially like Jesus. Not because we're deity, this isn't Mormon theology here, but because we are glorified and purified and transformed so that the perfect Son of God reflects off of a perfect creation to the display of His glory and greatness and radiance and truth and power and righteousness. And, and, and I don't know if you think about this. I, I think about every time I drive at 5 o'clock in downtown Fort Worth and there's that one high rise that has all those mirror-like windows and at the right time, even with sunglasses on, it's blinding to look at that. And one day there will be a host, thousands upon thousands, thousands millions upon millions of Christians from generations of old through whenever Jesus comes, all of them purified around the throne. There's no sun in heaven because there's Jesus and his, his light is sufficient. And as all those believers gather around his throne, the radiance and the glory and the brilliance is blinding for all of eternity as we radiate his character and righteousness and glory to him in praise. That's something to get excited about. That's something worth living for now because we want to make as many of those spiritual mirrors to come with us in that day. And finally, chapter 4. We need to pursue harmony when disagreements occur. We talked about that. The, play, the church is the place where we should help each other work out disagreements. You know what? We're sinful. We're not in heaven yet. We're not in that glorious, you know, around the throne yet, which means we're going to sin against each other. We're going to have disagreements. We're going to miscommunicate. We're going to be selfish. We're going to hurt each other. The church is the place where we're supposed to work that out so that we can be a real testimony to a lost world. The gospel is about transformation. The second thing we saw is that you need to replace your worry. We need to stop worrying. And we saw the little outline there. To stop worrying, to start praying, look forward to peace, think on things that are true, practice godliness by following godly examples, and remember that Christ is always with us. We just talked about that, so um, that shouldn't be a problem. By the way, just a footnote on that. I should have said this at the beginning. Uh, several of you asked for um, CDs on the two-part on anxiety, and I have those today, so if you want those, come find me. Okay, so, but we need to put off worry, replace worry with trusting, thinking on things that are true, remembering that Christ is with us. The second thing we saw just a couple weeks ago is we need to learn to practice the secret of contentment. The secret of contentment is that contentment is not based on having the right circumstances, that contentment is based on having Christ. And if you have Christ, as we just saw a moment ago, you have everything. Because contentment is a learned state. We saw that. Contentment is possible in any and every circumstance. We saw that. 
Contentment is not dependent on circumstances. And I'm just going to read this for you again, even though you know it. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any in any and every circumstance. Even the way he constructs the sentence is like, really, you can have contentment in any condition. He says, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, having abundance and suffering. In verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And that verse is not about football. It's about, thank you, Kit, it's about... What? Jesus will give you whatever you need to really be joyful and content in whatever circumstances you find yourself in. So it is about football. Not like if I put it on my my face that, you know, Jesus is going to help me to win the game. No, that verse applies to football in the sense is how do you respond when you lose? We can do all things through him who strengthens us. And finally... We should give toward the gospel and pray for fruit. Remember we saw that? These Philippians stood by Paul throughout his ministry. They gave when no one else gave. They were there with him from the beginning. And as we learned last week, you never know how the Lord might use your investment in gospel ministry because Paul, as he concludes the letter, he says this. You know what he says? He says, verse 20, Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. That's not just a doxology. that's That's how he really felt. As he contemplated this, greet everyone, every saint in Christ, the brethren who are with me greet you. Oh, and all by the way, all the saints greet you, especially those of Nero's household. We saw last week that because of the influence of this little church in their regular giving to Paul's ministry, even when no one else gave, Paul had an opportunity to present the gospel to somebody that got it to the very household of Caesar and some of them got saved. That is the work that God says, would you like to be a part of that? See, we can get caught up in everything else and have a worldly perspective. Or we can, we can buy into the divine perspective of this book and we can know joy that people will not explain. We will know contentment that people can't figure out. And we will have an opportunity to participate in ministry that God will use in extraordinary ways as he builds his church for his own glory and for his own praise. I don't know about you, but that's the work I want to be a part of. That's what I want my life to be about. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time in Philippians and uh, what a joy it's been to, to study in depth and to learn how to see. Father, thank you for how this book has helped us to learn how to see, how to, how to think about things, how to, how to approach circumstances and experiences. And thank you for how we've learned that the gospel transforms our outlook. And the byproduct of that transforming outlook is joy. Father, thank you for Paul. Thank you for using Uh, this letter and working in him and through him so that what he wrote was not just Paul's words, but was an inspired, inerrant text from you to us that we might be built up and changed and grow. Now, Father, we pray we, we, we have some work to do. And so we pray that you would help us to digest what we've learned, to apply what we've been taught. And as a result of your spirit working through your word in this particular letter, that we would not only look more like Jesus ourself, but as a church, 
we would be more influential, that we would make the gospel more attractive, and we would have opportunity to continue to reach out to hurting and broken people that are lost and need Jesus. Would you do that in this place for your own honor and glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.